0: Please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, we love your word. We bless you for every page of it. Um, Today we come to one of the more difficult pages, and we pray that you would um, meet us, Lord. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to love and hear the words of your Son. Um, And would you teach us and transform us by them, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to continue that theme that Sarah brought up from uh, John chapter 8 today. Um, And I have found, as I've worked on this passage this week, that it is uh, one of the more difficult parts of Scripture. Um, There's a lot of conflict going on in this passage in John 8, and I'm a person who doesn't like conflict very much. Um, So we'll wade into this together. Uh, There's a lot of good good news and good fruit to be found in it, too. Uh, So to kick us off, most of you know that I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, And if I asked you to quote for me any line from any Star Wars movie, I expect the line that I'd hear back most often is, ''Luke, I am your father.'' (laughs) That line, spoken by Darth Vader to Luke Skywalker at the end of Episode 5, ''The Empire Strikes Back,'' is the big reveal of those first two movies. That line is now 43 years old, and it's still famous. Um, And that line also turns out to be a kind of theme sentence for the whole Star Wars franchise, doesn't it? Uh, Because the whole franchise cares an enormous amount about family of origin. Who your parents are matters hugely in all those movies. Uh, And it's a common theme of all nine movies that people reverse the path that their parents walked. Let me show you. I'm going to spoil them all if you haven't seen them. Uh, In episode one, Anakin is essentially adopted and raised by Qui-Gon, who is a Jedi. In episode two, Qui-Gon's dead and Anakin gets essentially fathered then by Obi-Wan, who's another Jedi. But in episode three, Anakin turns against both of those fathers to join the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. Right before he changes sides, Anakin fathers Luke and Leia, both of whom refuse their father's path to the dark side and fight alongside the Jedi. Luke's discovery in episode 5 that he is Darth Vader's son is a bombshell that devastates him and also tempts him a little bit to join his father in episode 6, but he doesn't do it and instead he converts his own father back. So Vader who has now become the new adopted son of Darth Sidious, betrays his new father, too. And the pattern continues into the sequel trilogy because in Episode 7, we meet the new villain, Kylo Ren, who is the son of heroes, Leia and Han Solo. Once again, the son of light is darkness. And the big mystery of the sequel trilogy is Rey's parentage. Where does Rey come from? And we have to wait till Episode 9 to finally get the answer but her father is the old villain Darth Sidious. And we all should have seen that coming, guys. We all should have predicted that because it completes the perfectly consistent Star Wars pattern that darkness gives birth to light and light gives birth to darkness. Nobody anywhere in that trilogy of trilogies follows the path of their own parents. And that is the precise opposite of what Jesus says is true in the real world. Um, In John chapter 8, so Jesus agrees that our parentage is important, maybe much less so our biological parentage, but certainly our spiritual parentage is vitally important, but it's important positively instead of negatively. Uh, We want to be like our Heavenly Father, not unlike Him. And in fact, in Jesus' view, our likeness to our Father proves our true parentage. Um, So let's see that by opening John chapter 8 together. It's page 894 of the church Bibles. The Bible's in front of you, page 894. We're going to open John chapter 8. So uh, if you haven't been with us for the past few months, we've been working through John's gospel as a a series every week. Um, And we're going to keep working through John's gospel all fall. So uh, here we are in chapter 8 today. So we're going to start in at verse 31 and finish the chapter. All right, so this chapter has a whole lot to say about fathers and their children. And we find three consistent patterns regarding the children of God. So first, the children of God do the work of God. Second, the children of God abide in the word of God. And then third, the children of God love the Son of God. So the children of God do the work of God. The children of God abide in the word of God. And the children of God love the Son of God. Let's see those things at work in this passage. So first, the children of God do the work of God. Uh, That's what Jesus says to the Jewish leaders in verse 39. If you find it, Jesus says, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And Jesus reinforces that point by teaching the corollary in verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Do you see that? The connection between parentage and work. Uh, So here, Jesus gives us really what's a universal law, like a law of physics. He says, if A, then B, and if not A, then not B. Just like one of Isaac Newton's laws of motion. If a body has a net force on it, it's going to accelerate. If there's no net force, it will not accelerate. Here, Jesus gives us a similar kind of law. He gives us a strong connection between family identity and behavior, not just a strong connection. In Jesus' words, a perfect correlation. The children of Abraham will always do the works that Abraham did, and the children of the devil will always do the works the devil desires. It's very interesting. Um, And so what are these main works that the devil desires? we learn from Jesus that they are lying and murdering because he says in verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. We can quickly verify both of those facts from the book of Genesis. When we first meet our enemy, the devil or Satan in the Garden of Eden, the very first thing he does is to lie saying, you shall not surely die. And the second thing he does is to murder, killing Adam and Eve and then their son Abel. So indeed, he was a murderer from the beginning. And we do find here in this passage in John chapter 8 that the Jews that Jesus is talking to are the spitten image of their father. Uh, we should take care to note here, as we've noted before in this ju- series in John's gospel, that whenever John says the Jews throughout his gospel, he means the Judeans, the Jewish ruling class in Jerusalem. He doesn't mean all Jews, since John himself was a Jew, and so was Jesus. But these Judeans prove here that this, in this passage that they are indeed the children of the devil, as Jesus says, by their works of lying and murdering. So first, in verse 33, they say, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Is that true? I mean, in their calendar, every year, they had the Feast of Passover in the spring, which celebrated, what? Their release from slavery in Egypt. Then later in the year, there was Purim, the Feast of Purim, remembering when God rescued them from annihilation during their slavery in Babylon. And then came the winter solstice when they celebrated dedication, which remembered when the Maccabees took their brave stand against the enslaving Greeks. So three different kinds of slavery already, and then not to mention that they were currently under forced occupation by the Romans, paying exorbitant taxes to fund a pagan militaristic regime. The children of Abraham have never been enslaved to anyone? Are you sure about that? And they speak another major lie down in verse 48 when they accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. Now, it might have been difficult to know for sure whether Jesus had a demon, but Samaritan was easy to prove. He could only have been a Samaritan by being born in Samaria or by having at least one Samaritan parent, which he clearly did not. His parentage and his place of birth were well documented. So this lie seems to boil down to nothing more than a racial slur. And we notice that in verse 49, Jesus doesn't even dignify it with an answer. He denies that he has a demon, but he markedly says nothing at all about whether he's a Samaritan. He won't even sink to playing their racist game. Uh, In fact, Jesus actually loved Samaritans and wouldn't find that accusation in any way offensive. It just wasn't true. These guys are telling lies. And on top of being liars, they were also murderers. Verse 37, Jesus says, you seek to kill me. Again in verse 40, but now you seek to kill me. And in verse 59, they prove him right by picking up stones to stone him. So they are indeed liars and murderers. They're doing whatever pleases their father, the devil. So we find this connection in this passage, both both positively and negatively, between works and parentage, spiritual parentage. But the point for us to take home is that our actions are what prove our true allegiance. The message is that the children of God do the work of God, and the children of the devil do the work of the devil. Jesus says so. So that should be a challenge to us, because it means that we can't just say to ourselves, I believe that Jesus has saved me, therefore I'm all good. I can just go back to my old sinning ways, and I'll be just fine now. No. Instead, we should ask ourselves, where is the evidence in my life? Am I proving every day by my choices that I am a child of God? Because yes, it is true that we are saved by faith alone and not by the works we do in keeping God's law. But the faith that really saves is never to be found alone. It never fails to produce good works that are in keeping with God's law. It never heals the tree without also healing its fruit. So in Abraham's case, he trusted God, and he obeyed God's call to go. And in Jesus' case, he asserts in verse 46 of this passage that he's no hypocrite. He's practicing what he's preaching. He says to them, who of you convicts me of sin? And that could be translated, who of you brings my sin into the light? And the answer is, no one, because he had no sin. He was a good tree bearing good fruit. Jesus says in verse 55, that I know my Father, and I keep his word. So there's a strong connection in this passage between work and being children of God. The children of God do the work of God. Now, second, the children of God abide in the word of God. Let's see this, too, in this passage. Jesus says in verse 47, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. And then again, he gives the corollary in the same verse. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Again, here we find another perfect mathematical correlation. If A, then B, if not A, then not B. The children of God always hear, believe, and abide in God's word while the children of the devil always hate, ignore, and disbelieve that same word. So Jesus tells the Jewish leaders in verse 43, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And again in verse 37 he says, My word finds no place in you. So we discover in this passage a very strong connection between word and work. Word and work are tied together in several ways. First, by this comparison of the two universal laws that we've identified, that all the children of God do the work of God, and all the children of God abide in the word of God. It follows, then, that all people who abide in the word of God also do the work of God. A second very important connection is to notice that the work of God is to hear and believe in the word of God. So remember, what were the two characteristics of the devil's work? It was lying and murdering. And if we take the opposites, the opposite of lying is believing and speaking the truth, and the opposite of murdering is receiving and offering eternal life. And lo and behold, these opposites are the primary works of God in this chapter. So here's what Jesus says in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So do you see that? Knowing the truth and abiding in Jesus' words are the criteria for true discipleship. That means that those things are part of the work of God, even that they're the main work. So when I asked you earlier, when I said earlier that the children of God do the work of God, I expect that you asked yourselves, well then... How often do I care for the poor, or feed the homeless, or welcome the stranger, or support my Christian brothers and sisters with meals, or give money to charity? That's the kind of stuff that we tend to have in mind when we think about good works, when we think about what is the work of God. But do we count our attention to God's word as our work? Our belief and trust in the truth as our work? Because they are. Those things are the work of God. Jesus says that here and in many other places. And he says it to the extent that if we are not abiding in his word, and we're still trying to do other kinds of good works, then we're probably wasting our time. On the other hand, if all we focus on is hearing, believing, and abiding in his word, then we probably can't help but do the other good works too. So in the story where Jesus meets with Martha and Mary, That story that we know well, Jesus said that Mary, who sat at his feet and listened to him, had chosen the better portion. We understand that to always be the case with Jesus' disciples. Now, to take another example, when we try to think of someone who did good work in Jesus' name, who really made a difference in the world recently, many of us go straight to Mother Teresa of Calcutta the Catholic nun who won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work among Indian orphans. Would it surprise you to learn that Mother Teresa not only spent her days being Martha, hard at work, but also devoted a large portion of every day to being Mary and sitting at the feet of Jesus and drinking from his word. She spent the first hour of every day abiding in the word and prayer at morning mass, and then another three hours every afternoon in private devotion and study time. She knew that abiding in the word was her work. And there's still another connection here between the word and work in this chapter because we've heard Jesus say that it's the truth that sets us free. And he explains in verse 34 that truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So then, doing the work of the devil, even just a little bit, Lying and murdering just a bit quickly means that it's all we can do. That evil work has an addictive quality. We get stuck in it. We can't get out. We find ourselves slaves to it. And in particular, we can't stop lying. So the word of God then is what gives us the freedom that we need to do the work of God. Yet another powerful connection between those two things. I want to try to paint for you a bit of a picture of this pattern of slavery and see if you recognize it from what Jesus teaches here. So imagine that I'm a married man and I notice that a young woman that I work with is very pretty. And she's pretty flirtatious and interested in coming to find me during break times. I get more and more interested. I don't say anything about it to my wife. I just ride it out for a while. At the office Christmas party, my wife notices and asks, Who's that girl? I blow it off. But my wife grows increasingly suspicious, and then the lying starts. I pretend not to know what she's talking about. Six months down the line, and I've had an affair. And now it's serious lying every day. The truth is just too dangerous, too much to bear. So it's deny, deny, deny. And now all of a sudden, I find that I don't really enjoy reading my Bible anymore. Too many passages I find uncomfortable to read. Too many sermons I don't enjoy listening to. I start to say that Paul, he had some funny ideas about Jesus. That Jesus never said that he was the son of God. That his disciples made that up. In fact, I'm not sure I really believe the gospel anymore. Or understand why religious people are so fanatical about this thing they call the truth. At home, I treat my wife more and more poorly. I grow more and more selfish. Sometimes a philosophical debate comes up with my friends, and I know that I'm cornered, that I have to ignore huge mountains of evidence to keep hold of my doubts. But that's what I'm going to do. It's the only thing left for me to do. Deny, deny, deny. Do you recognize that person? Have you been that person? I know that but for the grace of God, I would have been for sure. I know what it is to be a slave to sin, to have a standard for the person I want to be, and to fail to meet that standard every single day. I have personal evidence of my slavery. Lies give birth to wicked acts, and wicked acts give birth to more lies. And the web of lies enslaves us to wickedness so that we cannot hear the truth anymore. We shut our ears to it because we cannot bear it, how pitiful we are, and how hideously enslaved. Jesus has the only remedy. It is the truth. And the truth will set you free. It will probably hurt you very deeply first and cut you but it will set you free, break you out of that cycle of slavery. Now, I've been pretty hard on the Jewish leaders in this passage because I think Jesus is pretty hard on them, but it would be a real mistake for us to judge and criticize them for their hard-heartedness and not recognize how very much like them we are, how we too often prefer the sweet, comforting lies to the bright light of truth and often tell people that we're okay that we don't need to be saved rather than confess our deep inner brokenness. We all need the medicine that Jesus holds out in this chapter, his prescription that the truth will set us free. So let's ask as our third point, what then is this liberating truth? And the answer we find that it's all about Jesus himself, who he is and what he came to do. So first, the children of God do the work of God. Second, the children of God abide In the word of God, and now finally, the children of God love the Son of God. The Son has the only solution in verse 36. In fact, the Son is the only solution. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And for this reason, the free children of God love the Son of God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Jesus has the power to free us because he himself is not a slave, because he did not sin and never was a slave to sin, as he demonstrates by his own words and actions in this passage. Jesus also has the power to free us on the authority of God because he came to do the work of God, as he says in verse 42. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And most importantly of all, Jesus has the power to free us because he is God. And this is the great revelation, the great bombshell at the end of this conversation. Beginning in verse 57, the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple Stoning in in the time of first century Judaism uh, was the punishment for only two crimes. It was the punishment for adultery and for blasphemy. And Jesus was clearly not on trial for adultery here. So this stoning was for blasphemy. And that meant that they had understood him correctly, that he was indeed claiming to be God here. He said before, Abraham was, I am. And that I am evoked the holy name of God. Now, I think we have to wonder exactly why it was that they took so much offense at this. Especially after verse 31, we find that these Jewish leaders that he's talking to are the ones who had believed in him in the previous passage. They had been inclined to believe that he was indeed the light of the world. You have to wonder what they were expecting. Would it not be worse to claim to be the light of the world and not be God? It surely wasn't all that surprising for students of their Hebrew Bible that God would come in the flesh to save us. Isaiah hinted at it pretty strongly. Daniel saw visions of it. Some of the Psalms pretty much flat out said it. It wasn't objectionable to their scriptures in any way. And the signs Jesus had been doing should have given him an enormous amount of credibility with Jewish believers. What Jesus says of them is that it wasn't their Judaism that he was offending. It was their lies. It was their fortress of lies. Lies that they had never been slaves and didn't need to be rescued. Lies that they were eternally secure just by being born into the family of Abraham when the whole exile fiasco had shot that plane right out of the sky. Lies that they were the good guys, self-righteous, the cream floating to the top of all those other miserable sinners. That was what was truly being offended here. And I believe that very same thing is still what's being offended today. Whenever Jesus stands up and tells people the truth of who he is. He puts a stick through our web of lies, and that's what really makes us mad. Because we prefer to stumble around in total darkness thinking we're clean than let a chink of light shine in to show us how dirty we are. We curse the light for telling us the truth. Jesus remains the most divisive person in the world. Orthodox Jews hold funerals for their children who come to faith in Jesus. Muslims whisper in the ears of their newborn babies, Allah has no son. Atheists will tolerate any outlandish belief about the world as long as it's false and give it a pat on the head and a benign smile. But that turns into a snarl of rage the instant Jesus stands up to say what's true. You're blind if you can't see that both the love and the hatred of our world are uniquely focused on this man. No other nutter or lunatic or prophet or false messiah has had as many people willing to die for him and as many people willing to kill him as Jesus has. Not even close. And the only reasonable explanation for this phenomenon is the reason Jesus gives, that he is the truth. And that it's an inconvenient and unpalatable truth. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But for those who do believe him, they become children of God. And the children of God welcome the light. And they love the Son of God. See the devotion in this room. How we sing in worship. How the tears flow in prayer how we give our lives to loving one another as he commanded. This is not dry and dusty religious duty. This is a passionate, lifelong love affair. And if you sit here with a heart that is cool toward Jesus, wake up. Are you listening? He put himself in harm's way for you. He stood up and told the truth when he knew it would be hated, when he knew it would get him killed. He stood up and told the truth because nobody else was going to tell you the truth. And you needed to hear it or you were going to die. You had fallen into sin. You were in slavery to sin and you could not get out. And only the truth could free you. You might think, that the lies that you cloak yourself in are your friends. You might think that the lies form a shield of protection between you and disaster, but that is not the case. The lies are your enemies. They are what's really going to kill you. The lies are the cattle car train carriage that's bringing you to Auschwitz. And the truth is the only key to the padlock. The biggest lie in the world that people believe is I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't need to be rescued. I'm okay. I'm good enough. It's not going to end in disaster for me. Friends, hell is going to be populated with people who thought they were okay. And the most liberating truth in the world is the knowledge that we are not okay, that we're in trouble, that we need to be saved. Because as soon as we acknowledge that, We also find that we can be. So then, whatever it takes, tell the truth. Confess the truth. Tell them what you did. Bring it into the light. Only then will you be free. A little bit of truth, and you will be amazed how quickly and how easily the web of lies disintegrates around you. And you will be amazed what your life can be without it. The incredible lightness of being. Jesus has one final promise for us in this passage, verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Children of God get this promise to live with God forever. And again, in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death and never see death. So, brothers and sisters, in this glorious family of God, Come all the way out of the self-deception that will kill you and embrace this truth that will set you free. Abide in the word of God, do the work of God, and love the Son of God.